Welcome everyone to Goddard in the World podcast. Uh, Goddard in the World podcast is a project of the Goddard Alumni Council, where we highlight Goddard alumni accomplishments out in the world. Our guest today is Rachel Economy, a Goddard graduate, obviously, because <laughs> that is what we do here, um, that we met, uh, me and my co-host, Casey. Hey, Casey. Hey. <laughs> Sorry. Um, we met her this year, this past year, um, because she has joined the Alumni Council um, back in the fall. Uh, she was, I first met her at Alumni Weekend, our virtual Alumni Weekend 2020. And she was just awesome, like just like really fit in, like, you know, we and a lot uh, some of the people at, on Alumni Council know her from the GGI program and um, mm -hmm. uh, whenever she graduated, whenever they all graduated, it was after my time. Um, but yeah, and so like, but like when I met her, I'm like, oh, my God, yeah, like I need we need to have her because she has a, an amazing energy and like really she 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 always asks really good questions and she has a really good way of framing a problem or a situation um and that is part of her design thinking which is something that we talk about in our uh interview with her and um yeah like like the alumni council members who knew her prior, I was very much voting for her to like come on board. So, you know, it's a secret ballot, but I did vote for her <laughs> to, like, <laughs> to get on the alumni council. Cause I, cause I knew she would be an amazing um, addition to our team, but yeah. What did you think Casey of our yeah. interview with her? Yeah. Rachel is just an incredible person and her work that she is doing is both, um, inspiring and also um, enlightening and it, it it shows just the way that she thinks about things and and is driven um, in certain ways that really um, makes you interconnect sort of life and the planet and the universe and sort of um, structuring that around ideas and philosophies and um, and then also being very um, in touch and being sort of very complete with that as well as hands-on it's really a, a wonderful um, experience to get to know Rachel not only through um, this interview but also just serving with her on alumni council and you know having a unique spirit like that is always beneficial and yeah been a rock star and uh, it was wonderful to interview her for sure yeah and Rachel is um, the main person organizing the business happy hours that you have been hearing about <laughs> maybe if you listen to the end of our episodes of our previous episodes um, she, it was her idea. She wanted to like bring this business community together. Um, and so, so we will, I, I am sort of helping her do that, but the, it's, it's really something that she is taking on, um, her own initiative. And so, uh, she has great ideas for that. And so I hope you all join us, uh, when we, when we start up these business happy hours. So without further ado, here is our interview with Rachel Economy. Welcome, everyone, to Goddard in the World podcast. Our guest today is Rachel Economy. Rachel is a poet performer, ecological educator, design thinking strategist, and gardener. She is the owner of Index for the Next World, an online hub of story publication, skills education, and human-centered design consulting for those seeking to build a world that thrives. Rachel holds a master's degree in social innovation and sustainability from Goddard Graduate Institute, GGI, with a concentration in transformative language arts and a master's thesis exploring narrative redesign as part of social change and ecological justice. She teaches gardening, needs-based design, systems thinking, writing and performance, permaculture, group facilitation, maker and homesteader crafts, and embodied nature connection skills to all ages in rural and urban settings. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks Thank for being here. Thank you for having me. It's such a pleasure. Welcome, awesome. Rachel. Welcome, Rachel. Thank you. <laughs> um, 
So, Rachel, your bio has Goddard uh, written all over it, <laughs> yes. specifically GGI, with all of your multidisciplinary work. Um, we will get to all of all of the things, um, but I just wanted to start with like a thread that connects your work is gardening. So, can you tell us an early story about your connection to land and cultivation? Mm. Yes, I can tell you a very early story, which is that as a child, one of my favorite activities I learned later during a birthday party expose was to hang out naked in the green bean thicket in my parents' small garden and just eat green beans uh, happily Mm. in the sun. And I learned this because apparently there was photographic evidence and it was brought out at my fourth grade birthday party and my friends loved it. And I was pleasantly embarrassed. So Mm. it's a longstanding uh, relationship. I grew up here in Atlanta where I'm sitting right now and um, felt very connected to the land and uh, very aware that the land here doesn't belong to me, but Mm. also felt very in the sensation that I belonged to the land. Wow, that's so interesting to say. Um, I love that nature, well, would you say that nature is a major part of your work? I mean, because obviously gardening and design is part of it and nature has a specific relation to cultivation and, um, yeah, I don't know. Gardens. Um, so can you can you talk a little bit more about that and and what your relationship there is like? Yeah. So I think uh, in our culture, especially in the West, in the U.S., there is a construction of nature as something other than human and mm. the wild as something that is far away. And a lot of our environmental discourse and conversations end up happening around just trying to not impact it. That's the opposite of my sort of philosophy. I'm interested in participatory ecology. I don't think we're separate. I think the concept of separation is one of the sort of underpinnings of a lot of the oppressive systems that we're in. And Mm. so I'm interested in us as animals. I'm interested in ecological systems and us as ecological members of those systems in which there are flows of energy and matter. And so to me, the, the gardening sort of flows out of that, of how are we taking care of the land, each other, our communities? You know, well, we need food. The way that food has been produced, um, especially in the last 10,000 years, especially in the last 100 years, has become more and more industrialized, um, globalized, systematized in ways that are pretty harmful to people and the land. So to me, it's it's a such a node of re-becoming ecological participants. But also, I the truth is, I just love being in the dirt. I think part of my personal experience of being sort of a human animal is uh, <laughs> I love being in the dirt. I love the collaboration with a seed. And so I think people often think of gardening as a power over or a management or a stewardship. And I'm always playing with both like, oh, the creative autonomy of being a gardener. Yum. And I'm a collaborator with these plants. I'm not saying I'm not going to impact them because there's no such thing as not impacting our Mm. ecologies. So I'm trying to make wise choices about our exchanges of impact and our exchanges of needs and yields. You know, I'm giving them food. They're giving me food. Um, So when I think about nature, I almost I think English is a little bit limited Mm. with the word that I'm looking for. But I really think of this what are our, our different ecologies? That's so interesting. Um, you talk, I think this is part of it and part of your, um, your work with gardens and designing and, and, you know, community and participation. Um, in your, in your bio, you talk a lot about design thinking and systems thinking. Uh, can you explain for our audience? I, I'm really fascinated by those terms, but I may not have a very good grasp of them. So can you, <laughs> deep breath. 
Well, it's I'm just Take smiling. No, I'm just smiling because I I'm often finding the sort of humor in how did I accidentally come into these these practices in this career in which the th- the practices feel so pragmatic and like they belong to everybody to me and the language is so jargony. Yeah. Uh, and and I'm uninterested in gatekeeping via language and mm-hmm. I haven't always found better language so I end up needing to explain. So I think sure. about that particularly with things like design thinking permaculture, systems mm-hmm. thinking. And and I don't think that gatekeeping is neutral. I think using jargon sort of and guarding the doors of knowledge is is part of these um, oppressive systems that uh, have stolen a lot of knowledge. And so I really want to choose a different way of being in relationship to them. So I think the design thinking in a way is at the heart of my work, which is how do we as creatures as individuals, as communities, as members of ecologies, local ecosystems, um, figure out what we need and then do it. Mm. That's really the heart of the question is how are we going to do this ourselves? How are we actually going to create the worlds that we need now? And that could be how are we going to create the garden that we need now? And Mm -hmm. that could be how are we going to create the meeting structure that we need now? Because the one we're using is burning everybody out and someone can't even get in the door because there's two steps up to it. This could be how are we going to z- design you know, a school or an organization in a way that actually embodies the values that we're talking about in that school or organization. Um, this is prefiguration, another word that's jargony, but basically saying like, are we doing what we say we're about in our practices? And mm-hmm. so- to me, design thinking and systems thinking are almost like birthrights to us. We're parts of systems. We have senses. We exchange air. Like, uh, and we are creatures who create and collaborate. Um, and we create stories. And those stories change our behavior, which changes the matter of the world around us. So all that to say, design thinking is actually a very specific process that shows up in a lot of fields. and. It really goes through assessing the needs of the constituents of the question. So that might be an organization that's uh, trying to turn an empty lot into a garden. Okay. So we're going to assess their needs. Uh, that includes like, whose land is this currently? Whose land was it in the past? What animals are there? As well as who's in the organization? Who do they serve? We're chatting about needs, values, desires. Then mm-hmm. we're brainstorming, coming up with ideas, uh, really you know, letting ourselves get really wild and outrageous with what might be possible. Then we're prototyping, which means coming up with a sort of rickety, easy to make first version of a couple of those ideas and testing them out to see what works and what needs to be tweaked. And then we're coming up with a more long-term design, but we continue to take feedback and tweak it going forward. And when our needs change, we re-engage with the design process again. And um, so that's, to me, the core design question, the core design process. I use it in my personal life all the time. And then systems thinking, um, a really great person to check out for this, who I uh, was delighted to get to read some of her work uh, while I was at Goddard. She's no longer living. Her name is Donella Meadows. And she's, some of her articles are online. She describes a system as a set of elements that have a purpose that they're carrying out. Now, that purpose is actually defined as what they actually end up doing, not what they say they're going to do. And that's how okay. it comes back in. So okay. an organization is a system because it has the elements, all the people, and they are enacting a purpose. Now, it might be different than their stated mission. Mm. And that's mm-hmm. where this design question of that discrepancy, that difference between what we say we're about and the lives that we end up living or the systems, you know, the political systems, the cultural systems we end up creating. Um, how can we? be designing from a, who are the elements, who are the constituents here and what are their linkages to each other and what, uh, sort of purpose or function, uh, are they serving and which one do they want to serve? So the systems Mm -hmm. thinking to me links up with the design thinking in that way. Right. That's so interesting. Have you worked, have you yourself worked with organizations to, um, design thinking and system thinking, like, you know, about, about certain projects? Yeah, I have from within organizations, um, and I've worked for design thinking focused organizations. So we were constantly redesigning ourselves as well as teaching design thinking to kids. Um, But I'm now moving into working as a consultant with organizations. 
for exactly those purposes when they hit those mm-hmm. stuck points of discrepancy. And I'm really excited about that. I think, um, I think the nonprofit structure in particular lends itself to this accidental hypocrisy because it's structured like a hourglass where it's like everyone's under the executive director who's under the whole board. Board, and yeah. So all the and that's a in permaculture we call that the tree model where everything's going through one central trunk. Okay. And that's a really good model, really good design model for certain situations. But uh, if the nonprofit is trying to create equity. Um, parallel kind of equity in the world, it's not physically or politically or economically structured that way automatically. So how can we use design to mitigate that? Um, Mm. So I'm very excited to work more with organizations, especially those on the progressive and liberation oriented end. Yeah, Rachel, thank you so much. This is um, an area that I'm not super um, informed about. So learning from you is uh, going to be uh, wonderful over the next hour. But um, I'm interested in, you know, you talk about uh, continual, like, you know, transformation and where that has to kind of continue to occur and and ecology and that kind of stuff. And that's great because I think any learner and any development in any organization, um, that reflection and then that kind of as the needs change, being able to move um, in that way. Um, I have have some questions around sort of – how, uh, you know, scientific modification has sort of occurred. And then also about sort of some philosophy ideas around some of this about, you know, because I think there's some philosophical and historical kind of um, systematic things around ecology about going back, you know, you know, to the land and how that exists and sort of thing. And then I hear things like, oh, well, the science is pushing vegetation and mutation and, and, you know, and so I have these sort of concepts of um, ideas going back and forth in my mind around those kind of ideas, but this continual um, constant evolving and transformation as a needs change, a really interesting approach in, in that defined sort of sense. Mm. So how can you, can you talk a little bit about how maybe as you view the outside world seeing this, who isn't as familiar with those kind of concepts. And as you, you bump up against things like science and, um, and some other elements of like maybe philosophical pushback on, on the, the purpose and surrounding that, is that, is that a lack of education or, or individuals, you know, you're, you're being in um, consulting work and moving in that direction. Is that more of a knowledge sort of thing to sort of wrap your mind around all of these sort of elements and, I'm moving away from industrial and, you know, uh, understanding who originally like was part of this land and what animals and us as animals in that. Um, I guess that's a large element I'm adding all to this, but I'm just trying to get a sense about um, towards the novice level of an individual learning about these elements. How, how does that, how is that shaped in that mm-hmm. continual evolution and transformation? And how is that part of a center of, of the work you do and how you teach others? Mm. I love that question. There's so many parts to that. I'm going to pick up on the ones that are bubbling. And then if I miss something, let me know and I'll, I'll try to circle back. Um, I mean, one thing I'll just say is I, the, the, the construction of, of back to the land or going back to a time when it was good. That's a, that's a constructed narrative and it has a history and back Mm. to the land in particular has a history that, um, is actually quite associated with colonialism of mm-hmm. uh, like back to whose land. <laughs> so right. when you talk about right. back, when we talk about the paleo, when we talk, you know, uh, this idea of both idealizing, especially indigenous ancestors while right. distancing ourselves from currently living indigenous peoples um, actually to me is n- <laughs> I'm not particularly interested. I, I have, sure. you know, I grew up in a back to the land kind of community, but I think um you're exactly right to say like, these are the narratives that are more accessible. These are the narratives that people are coming from. And same with science. I have a science background. Um, I'm an environmental science person. Um, and I actually love science. I think it's great. Um, and though of science and technology intersection, you know, I'm not, I, I can act like a little bit of a Luddite, but, um, the science and technology intersection gives us adaptations and accessibility. Um, it gives us, uh, like people with a variety of say mobility needs, uh, things that need that they need. Um, so I don't think 
I think at heart, I'm just not a purist and I'm not an evangelist. I don't think any one thing is always the way to go. And um, I don't want to evangelize to the people I'm teaching. I want to offer them tools. And so instead of saying, this is exactly how you should be in relationship with your ecology, what I'm interested in saying is you're built as a body, as an animal, as your own scientist. We're constantly observing and we have constant data, the sort of naturalist approach to science rather than experimental one. And then the the design thinking process where you're testing things, that's a scientific process. That's a, yeah, I have a hypothesis. Yeah. So I actually, I think science education and design thinking education go really well together um, in the everyday and that people's values, you know, they're, that's something that they're deciding for themselves. And I try to work with people where I'm values aligned because I think I can help them the most. These, these disconnects that we see on the left between what we say we're about and what we want to do. But I think there's other work happening for where people have different values and they're talking to each other about those different values. Um, but I'm, I think at my best, which is not always, I'm really like trying to, trying to stay and trying to share an ethic of curiosity, but also an ethic of local localized empowerment. We can, you know, we, we get a lot of global information from science, from, um, politics about what's happening. And, it can really immobilize, especially young people. And to say like, we can, you know, grow our own food and it's important to know the history and we're not going to do it perfectly. Industrialization has also helped a lot of things, you know, um, a mm-hmm. lot of things and, and to try to be in that continual learner space of curiosity and relationship to the more than human world and also to our social and political history, but to not let that keep us from doing anything that immobilizing, I think is sort of where I find myself when I think about Mm. what you're asking. I don't know if that answers your question. Absolutely. Yeah, Yeah, that was wonderful. Thank you for hitting on all those because that was quite a few different things that are entangled together (laughs) sometimes. It's this constellation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. How does that work that you do sort of inform a lot of that? Giving those tools, I think, um, is really helpful. And then obviously uh, giving a historical sort of reality of (laughs) what exists rather than uh, what's been sort of, um, yeah. uh, Yeah told um rather than by conquerors or colonialists but yeah right thank you for that i appreciate that rachel yeah that's wonderful thank you for the question yeah and you know when you're doing the design process also like the histories and values and needs of the people in the room they're bringing them so it's also an emergent process of like who's here what can we find out and these are you know questions we ask in the woods too of like who's here what tracks are we seeing um and so i do think about like you know I want to hold shared values, but I'm also, I want to listen and I want to, um, you know, improvise and collaborate off of what's emerging in the room. Absolutely. I think that's super fascinating, Rachel. And I love what you said about, um, the, the constant dialogue that you have when you're doing design thinking about a thing like whatever whatever project it is um and <laughs> and and as far as gardening goes um i this is not really gardening but i mean i guess it is i have plants right and so <laughs> i have i have herbs um on my windows here in New York City, I don't have yes. a garden. I don't get to <laughs> That's a garden. Know, my backyard. Um, but I have loved these plants for a long time. Some of them for a really long time. And um, I thought that I had to be super knowledgeable before I got anything. And so I was like trying to read, but I'm like, there's so much, there's way too much to learn. And, um, plants being something that is not that expensive. I was like, you know what? I'll just take, uh, let's, let's just try. Like I really want basil like in my house, you know, and, um, learning how to adapt to that, you know, that, that is a lot of what taking care of plants for the last three years, I guess, or four years almost. Um, That's a lot of what it has taught me is um, you, there's, 
there's always a shift in how things are going to behave. And you and I were on a call last week and I'm like, I have fungus nuts. <laughs> and, you, <Right>. and I'm like, <laughs> and I said, I've, I've been doing the neem oil. You're like, okay, that's good. That's the thing. That's, that's what you do. And so they're, they're doing okay now, but, um, Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they are doing okay. But that is that is something that I have learned about cultivation is that there's always something new. I I was list, uh, watching last night. Curtis, my husband, and I watched Minari. The okay, it is very new. <laughs> A24 is the studio, Brad Pitt's uh, production company or whatever. Um, Steven Yun is the lead. It's about a Korean immigrant family and they go from California to Arkansas where the, the dad who is Steven Yun bought this large tract of land and they're living in a trailer and he's trying to farm and specifically farm Korean vegetables. Yeah. And he, it's, it's, it's an amazing movie um, for, for many reasons. Um, mo most particularly the like intimate family drama. Um, and it's based off the, the director writers like own life in mm. like the eighties, I guess in like, o like Oklahoma, Arkansas. And I found myself today, this morning as when I got up, I'm, I'm checking my plants. <laughs> you know, I have my fingers in the dirt. I'm like, Oh, are you okay? Maybe you're okay. I'm not sure. You know, I'm like having that kind of dialogue with my plants. Um, and then I decided that they all needed water, but, um, I don't know why I'm going off on this thing. I recommend the movie. <laughs> yeah. It sounds wonderful. Yeah. I mean, I, I really resonate with, it's interesting, right? Cause I think, especially in, in educational and, you know, larger cultures around uh, expertise and depth over breadth. And again, this gatekeeping of knowledge, this theft and then gatekeeping of knowledge often, um, uh, we can really feel like I don't have a right to do this. Yeah. Uh, and the thing I always tell people is seeds want to grow. Mm -hmm. Like you, you're not actually that much in control. You can you can impact them, but they're, they're, that's what they're made to do. The, the plants have a, have a, a strategy. Some of the seeds don't yeah. grow. They produce more than they need to. So um, that's one thing is like seeds want to grow. And we've been in collaboration with seeds for, you know, just thousands of <laughs> years. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, you know, a lot of what's happened is um, life ways have been interrupted by you know, colonialism, white supremacy, uh, genocide, <laughs> kidnapping, and also just, yeah, like forced or chosen migrations, all sorts mm -hmm. of things. And so to me, it's, it's such a, a site of like reconnecting to that birthright, you know, that yeah. like we weren't built to be, um, not in relationship to other organisms, just like, Oh, it's, you yeah. know, and so you're, you're like, you're saying you're, you're like made to notice, you notice and and I also worry a lot about my indoor plants. I will say I, I'm very stressed because I don't know how to think about them the way that I would think about outdoor plants in a system because indoor plants operate kind of differently. There's, they're not in a bed of soil or, you know, they're not open to the air where different pollinators can come. So I feel very confused by them, but I still keep trying to have them because I like having plants in the house, you know? So right. I think it is this, like the plants can be our teachers and it's great to learn, um, you know, as we go, I think as the questions arise, if you need to look something up, you can look it up rather than this, like, I must attain a particular certification level of gardening before I'm allowed to put a seed in the ground. Um, <laughs> and I do, I do believe that we have like ancestral knowledge in our bodies of, um, that we can like start to access of, you know, there's, I don't think there are any places where a relationship with plants isn't in the history of that that place or those people. So yeah, but I just, I really feel the like everyone can put a seed in the soil. You can do it in like a little plastic water bottle with holes poked in the bottom in an apartment that does, there are plants that don't need that much sun, you know, mm -hmm. um, 
there are people who will send you seeds for free. There are seed banks. And I do think a lot, you know, I think to your earlier question too, Casey, I think a lot about like, I don't think that we're going to solve the current food system issue by everyone having a garden. That's not my argument. Um, I think it's great for a number of reasons if you want to have a garden to have a garden. But I also think about this concept of um, like uh, refuge and and seed banks um, where seed banks are places uh, in the world, organizations where seeds are kept, lots of different kinds of seeds, and then they're grown out by people who interact with the seed bank and then they bring back the next generation of seeds. Oh, wow. That's and awesome. The seeds are a really interesting thing, right? They're both alive and not alive. They're kind of in suspended animation and they hold the sort of, um, to use a very technological metaphor, the program to like implement a uh, plant, you know? Yeah. And they don't last. They have, you have to grow them out and, uh, you know, a big bean will last a couple of years because it's got lots of material in there, but a tiny lettuce seed, it's not going to last. You have to grow it out and save the seed again. And so it's this collective enterprise of, you know, who's going to grow out the seeds in the seed bank. And in the same way, I think about seed banks of knowledge. Like, I don't think we're all going to replace the industrialized food system right now by growing gardens. But I do think that we, we cannot afford to lose the knowledge, you know, that practicing and, and knowing how to grow food and sharing that with our communities. Uh, we need that in the future as well as right now. And so there's this also this refuge of skills, this refuge of knowledge that I really believe in um, sharing and that it is everyone's birthright if they want it. Mm. And I will say also at the same time, being really tender about where is this knowledge coming from? Whose land am I on? It's a great organization called Queer Nature. Um, And they do a lot of what would traditionally be called nature connection. It's really interesting that that even that bio that you have of mine, I'm like, oh, I'm going to rewrite that part because they just put up a really great post about the nature connection world, really talking about indigenous people as if they're all dead in the past while teaching. Yeah. Saying only in the past saying they used to do this and then teaching these um, skills that all come from indigenous cultures on indigenous land that was never voluntarily ceded. And what does it mean for, um, you know, me as a white person to teach skills on stolen land that, you know, I, some of them are my ancestral skills. You know, I, I, on one side, Mm -hmm. I come from, you know, herbalists and cooks in Greece, but on the other side, I don't, I, you know, it's way, way back before I have any idea, you know, what they were up to. And, um, I've learned a lot from a lot of people. And so, you know, they're talking about, um, what does it mean to rematriate and, and honor those skills and to not gatekeep both with like a paywall, um, Mm -hmm. those skills from, from people who they've already been stolen from. Um, so I am thinking about, you know, just, I'm in curiosity about that right now as well of like, it's both everyone's birthright and there's repair to be made at the Mm -hmm. same time. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely a sense of privilege, um, that goes along with that, Rachel. You know, I went to a college out here for undergrad called the Evergreen State College, and it's a liberal oh, yeah. arts college. And um, they have a huge uh, Native American um, focus as part of their overall college, and they have since they started in 1970, which is really amazing um, and really close connection with um, uh, many of the, um, uh, the tribes that exist um, here in Washington State. But there's also this sort of sense that occurs around sort of like, okay, um, we want to, to respect and understand this, and yet we're coming from a, a white privileged sort of state, and, and and we're doing this sort of disconnect about okay, this is how you know we're, we're learning in connection, and yet and we're studying in connection, but it's not always the voice of those who have done done that work um, originally, and it was stolen from them, and now we're we're re, reteaching ourselves and reteaching even them when they come to study. Um, stuff that was theirs on their yeah. It's just a very, um, it's a very sort of in, in education, there's sort of a sense around, right? It's like one of those ideas of uh, learning about white privilege when you're all white with that right. privilege. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, it's like a real, there's a real like cognitive consciousness that is, that needs to be sort of understood in that sort of place. So, right. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Yeah. And that to me, you know, that, that brings up both like, yeah, what are the what are those gatekeepings to to the educator positions? Like why aren't 
um, you know, indigenous people in those educator positions, if they're having that be the theme of the education. Right. And, you know, it's one thing to center knowledge and a different additional thing to, to actually center people. Mm. Um, and to, in fact, not even center them, but, uh, like it, like who's, you know, it's one thing to be like, you can access our space. So I'm, you know, you can come in versus like you're co-creating and directing and, and actually at the center of leadership of the space. Um, and, um, one of the great things that queer nature was talking about was like the, our, the education needs to be free to people who have had these life ways stolen from them. It should not cost money. Um, but the other thing is about asking permission. The other thing I thought about is like in all of this, a practice of asking permission, um, and slowly, you know, asking permission and building relationships, same thing with the plants, you know, I, Mm -hmm. I'm not always good about this. Um, and it can sound a little woo -woo to people who don't come from, uh, any tradition of asking permission of plants, but, um, before you harvest from a plant, especially, you know, a plant that you're not in long-term relationship with when you found in the woods or something, um, asking permission. And if you never hear a no, that might be a problem. And it's not because I actually think I, it's not that I think I know whether or not the plants are talking to us. It's that my entire way of perceiving shifts when I am in a mindset and a body set of asking permission and listening for a possible yes or no, I'm paying attention suddenly to, well, how much of this is there? Is it rare? Maybe I'm not going to take it, but like on those body sensory levels that are built into us as animals. And I think the same thing like holds culturally of while we're here, I mean, we could leave those of us who, you know, not everybody, but those of us who come from the, the people who colonized this land, like we could leave. Um, that's an option, but, uh, also, that's not a great version of accountability to me. I think there's more that's needed, but to ask permission, you know, of whoever's land we're on, if we can't get in touch with them to at least let people know whose land we're on. Um, and then also to make repair and reparation, which means currently like move money. Um, so there is in the Bay area, something called the Shumi land tax, uh, which is basically back rent, um, paid to, um, indigenous folks in a particular organization who are, um, you know, working with the land there and it's calculated based on your income. And, uh, it's a very real tangible thing. It doesn't solve all the problems, but it's like, you know, what does it actually mean again, to embody the values that we say we're about? Are we just learning about them or are we enacting them? And, you know, if you're going to teach on someone's land, like, do you have the tribe's permission? And it sounds like in that case they do, you know, they, they're in collaboration with those tribes. Um, but just curiosity about permission or consent in these ways and also repair. I don't think there's a perfect answer to it, but I think, yeah. And also who's, who's actually directing and, and co-creating and, and, um, the space or the, this, the pedagogy or the curriculum or whatever it is. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rachel. Um, we do want to learn a little bit more about your journey, too, as Goddard in the World is sort of um, part of this podcast. And, you know, uh, we're so excited to hear about your ideas and to grow in that learning process. I'm sure Amanda and I are both um, really, really um, learning a lot. At least I know I am. I don't want to speak for Amanda, but um, uh, yeah. But um, yeah, for sure. so how <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your journey to Goddard, how you got to Goddard um, into the program. Um, what kind of work you did while you were there, who you collaborated and worked with, uh, that kind of thing. We'd love to hear a little bit more about you personally, Rachel, and, and your journey to, to Goddard. Yeah, thank you. I um, I learned about Goddard while I was working at a um, Quaker semester school in the Sierra Foothills called the Woolman School. Um, that was, at the time, a place for high schoolers to come and study for, like, they would live there for a semester and study peace, justice, and sustainability. And one of my colleagues there was also in the master's in education program at Goddard at the same time that she was working there. And so she was telling me about it. And uh, I was really intrigued. At that point, I was, as an educator, getting very into democratic education, consent to teach, you know, what does it mean to, for me to be in a position of power in a classroom, but also I want to lead? Um, what does it mean to create student-directed learning? And I was thinking a lot about becoming a teacher at the time. And so after that year, I took on a couple of uh, teaching jobs. I worked at a, um, an, a garden program at a public school. I worked in a very 
private school that's based on the Reggio Emilia schools, um, which is this student sort of emergent learning um, model, student-driven emergent learning. And I loved a lot of things about it, but I didn't like being stuck inside. And I also felt this, this grief that was like, okay, I found out what I like to do on a daily basis. I, I know I like to pl- be in the dirt. I know I like teaching. I like to be outside. I like to work with my body. Um, but I don't have a sense of how that's connected up to a bigger theory of change. You know, I, I don't know what it is that like why this work is good to do. And for me, I realized, oh, I actually don't think, you know, I want to think that social change can happen, but because I don't see how, and I don't see how it's connected to the work I want to do on a daily basis, I'm kind of in despair. Um, and for me, doing work that just feels good to me without a sense of larger purpose um, mm-hmm. wasn't sustainable, especially because teaching is exhausting. So having a sense of larger sense of purpose is important, I think. Um, and so I was thinking about going to the Goddard master's in education program. And I was on the phone with Sarah Barbara Williams, um, who uh, was the head of the social innovation and sustainability program talking about like, you know, I, I want to go to, I want to be a teacher, but I think what I need is a theory of change. Like, I, I think I know how to teach. I've been training in it for years at that point and I'll keep learning, but um, I have a theory of education, but I don't have a theory of change. And without it, I'm not sure I can go on, not just in my career, but in my life, you know, just this sort of realization of underlying despair and lack of creativity, um, and lack of, you know, thinking that creating change was possible. Um, partially cause I had been through so many nonprofits where they, we said we were doing one thing and then we did a different thing. Um, so I was feeling a little jaded <laughs> and burnt out. <laughs> oh uh, so in that context, I was like, trying, you know, I thought I can go to grad school in order to gain skills that I need for the career that I want, or I can go to grad school for, to like gain knowledge that I couldn't gain on my own. Those were my mm-hmm. two justifications for which yeah. I could go to grad school. Yeah. So, uh, I thought I'm going to do the second one. Um, and found my way to Goddard. And I had been thinking a lot about the ways that we, we, I'm trying to re-inhabit myself then, but I just been, had been thinking a lot about how, like, for instance, we sort of hold this, when I say we, I'm, I'm specifically talking about the sort of dominant culture in the U S um, we hold this story of, of scarcity that there's not enough, for instance, food to go around coming back to those food systems. There is, we have enough food on the planet right now to feed everybody. Um, that's not the problem. Uh, the problems are distribution, equity, uh, economic disparity, you know, all these things, but we actually have enough food. And I was thinking we're creating scarcity where there isn't any by telling the story that things are scarce and that scarcity also within capitalism, scarcity begets value. And I thought, is that true? Are, are, are scarce things inherently more valuable? That seems to make sense to me. But as I interrogated it more, I thought, oh, that's a, that's a story. Right. Like if an apple tree has a bumper crop, that's also very valuable to me in a different Mm. way. I don't think rare things are never valuable, but I was just starting to to play with like how much of what we're doing that we think is the default of quote unquote nature is actually a story or belief system that's invisible that we made up as humans or as particularly, you know, colonizer humans or, you know, we, my people made up. Um, And how do we change the stories? and the systems that they grow into. Uh, so that was also a question that was on my mind coming into Goddard. And so I got there and, and Goddard let me pay attention to story and ecological systems at the same time. You know, there's not a lot of that, that connection between narrative and science is, um, really hard to come by in traditional education and was so deeply meaningful to me. And so I worked with Sarah, Barbara Williams, and I worked with, um, Kat Lassard and uh, uh, Lisa Wheel, well, Weil, excuse me, and Jim Sparrow, um, who loves birds. And a lot oh, of, yes. Oh, he loves he those loves birds. birds. Oh, he <laughs> loves those birds. One of my favorite things that got it was going on a bird walk with Jim in the snow. <laughs> he, he was my first advisor mm. and he would 
write me about birds <laughs> like I, in in my packet letters. Yes. So I'm like, oh, that's so interesting. Um, but he really helped me realize, especially with Goddard being a different kind of education system than I had ever been in, the importance of the everyday mm-hmm. and just what's around me and what I can observe. And yeah. So anyway. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the birds. I resonate does. with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I so appreciated the advisors. Uh Karen, Miriam Goldberg also. Mm-hmm. Um and it was also the first time um this is relevant, I think, to what we're talking about. It was the first time, you know, the things I've been saying, I, I try to be as pragmatic and clear about them as possible. I don't think they sound sort of inaccessible and philosophical in my head. And then they often come out that way. And it was kind of the first time I was talking about them that other people said, oh yeah, that makes sense. Let's talk more about that versus what on earth are you saying? Um, so, you know, the, the other students, um, I can't, I mean, there's too many to name everyone who sure. I felt influenced by, but yeah. Where did the poetry come into mm. poetry and performance? Um, it was that something you did early or is it something you discovered? So the poetry, again, I think it can seem like there are a lot of disparate elements in what I do. And actually to me, they all come back to these questions of what are we imagining? How are we reimagining? Um, and a lot of the stuff that I teach is about how are we reimagining and then changing. And a lot of the poetry is how am I reimagining in order to be with, be with the world, be with myself, be with this pain, be with this pleasure. Um, I started writing poetry when I was 14, 15. My dad is a poet. So I I wasn't um, a totally unfamiliar landscape, but I actually started writing poetry because I read a poem in the high school lit mag and I was so into it. And I thought, I want to be like this person. And then I thought that's a terrible reason to start writing. And I was just shamed of it for years. And it's, it's like, no, that's how we like, we're drawn to things. And then, you know, that's how everyone does. Right. Exactly. I didn't, I didn't understand that, you know, attraction or draw was a good reason to do something. It's a better, it's a better reason (laughs) than being like, I could do better than that. Right. (laughs) It's a more generous reason. (laughs) to be inspired. I never thought about it that way. Um, yeah. And I, I kept writing. Um, I, I kept writing and, and I was, I became involved in the lit mag and I kept writing in college and I was involved in the spoken word poetry scene, although I was very shy in it. And I think, you know, wanting to be respectful also. Um, and I, I, was trying to figure out as an undergrad, like, why is poetry okay? I was again in this, like, what is my theory of morality and how does the thing I'm doing fall into it? Um, which mm. is, you know, maybe a little bit harsh, like art is important. <laughs> um, sure. but, uh, I think I, I was like, why am I allowed to do this when, you know, there are so many needs in the world? Why am I allowed to write poetry? And mm. I ended up writing a thesis on teaching poetry, like teaching poetry, writing as part of, um, urban high school ecological education. And what like became clear and clear to me is poetry is this inherently sensory form. We're talking about, you know, what's what we call imagery in poetry, but it's all the different senses. And it's kind of this inherently therefore ecological form where what am I noticing about what's inside me, what's outside me? We want, um, you know, we want imagery, we want touch, and that means interaction and that means ecology. Um, and so for these kids who are only being taught about global crises while they're, you know, there's literally a contaminated lake next to their school. Um, what a disempowering, what a immobilizing narrative. So we're, let's go outside, which they all hated. It messed up their sneakers. It was great. And write poems. And what does it mean to like reclaim my voice in my place, in this place that I live and have more, um, embodied agency, I guess, around my relationship to it. and. So I, that was sort of where the ecology, democratic pedagogy, poetry started to weave together. Um, and so I, from that, from then I, I really started to build a practice. I didn't really think of myself as a writer till after I got out of undergrad, but, um, I think the writing practice is partially a noticing practice and a partially an imaginative practice, both of which I think are essential. I don't think they're actually luxuries. Um, and so the book that I just, I just had this chapbook of poems come out with finishing line press. It's called the origins of streams. 
um, it's like poems from when I was in college, sort of being like the rivers are poisoned and who am I, you know, up to last year, things that I wrote last year. That's awesome. Um, and so, so you collected them for this chapbook that like, they hadn't been published previously? A couple of them had, um, mm-hmm. but most of them not. Yeah. Yeah. I printed them all out. I don't, I'm not great on the screen. So I printed them all out and then moved them around my floor. <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, I think it might be the embodiment of doing that, but that's how I wrote a play like, you know, in the fall. That's so <laughs> cool to I'm hear. Like, I don't understand. I'm like, these don't work like this, but how do they work? And I just literally cut things off. It's like quilting. And like moved it around. Yes. <laughs> Collage or quilting. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. One of the things I love about being a um, Goddard um, alumni and interacting with new people um, from Goddard, and I think, <clears throat> Rachel, you probably will agree with me as someone who has been in democratic education and self-driven learning education and understanding that, um, you know, you talk about these things and it's like, oh, well, someone might see this and go, you know, I have this part and this part, you know, this poetry and I have this ecology, I have this sort of sustainability and I have this different work I've done. And yet, I seem to recognize, and based upon Amanda's story, which she she shared with us on her podcast, and and just all of our guests so far, is that you know our alumni understand that we are interconnected beings all the time mm-hmm. um, with ideas and formulations and um, and subjects and passions and concerns, and and the ability to recognize that and then be able to make that a powerful force to share with the world and to bring out into the world. And yet even to question whether we have, we should have the, the ability and the access as you were doing with us a few minutes ago, Rachel, is, is, is really um, a critical thinking process and also a recognition of this interconnected liberal arts kind of learning that's part of the humanity of people and mm. how that sort of happens um, simultaneously. And it's very liberating in that sense, right? Because once you sort of get that sense and understand that's how people work and how, you know, I'd love to hear how your connection maybe to those ideas and subject matters also works with our connection as, as you know, as beings, as animals to the earth and to the world. Because I, I, when you mentioned that at the beginning of this podcast, I was thinking, well, that's another level I haven't always considered coming from a traditional Christian male, you know, sort of this like, you know, oh, we, we have to tender, you know, the, the ground and all this sort of thing, you know. <clears throat> so I'd love to hear um, some more about how maybe that kind of works both intersectionally um, um, with, you know, our ideas and, and what we work on. You know, how, do, how does your, your, your poetry confluence, you know, your ecology, and then how does that work with your gardening and how do all these things kind of interconnect and work and as, as beings, you know? Mm-hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that, Rachel, and, and how you're doing that currently or in the last few years, you know, and, and how that will continue to be shaped for yourself in the future. Mm. I love that. I love that. Yes. I, I mean, to me, I really respect and value people who want a deep dive, who want a full canon of knowledge about one thing, because I think we need that depth. Uh, us who are more sort of breadth people or, um, in terms of, you know, our careers or our academics or whatever, I think both are needed and communication between the two is key and not always there. Um, (laughs) but you know, I think uh, a lot of the the like great important climate science we're getting right now is because there are people who are like, and I pulled another core out of the earth floor and, and I analyzed it in the lab and I did it again, you know, and that level of depth and focus, like that's so important. And I don't want to do that. And I'm so glad there's someone who does. Um, and so I, I, I don't think that that's inherently bad at all. I think it's needed. And I've always been more of the like, I don't understand why these are different subjects in school. And I feel split apart by being asked to choose between science. Like it's what a false dichotomy between science and the arts. Like it hurts my soul, you know? Um, <laughs> and I was always like, yeah. And I get that. Cause I'm a generalist and blah, 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 Renaissance. And, and, and I've more come to think of it the way you're asking of like, it's weird to split things apart from each other and try to have them not be in relationship with each other ecologically. Mm-hmm. Like that is just not what's happening in our sort of 
baseline physical existence. Um, and then as humans, you know, like where I'm in a building right now, I am separated from my ecology. There's some benefits to that. It's very cold and wet outside right now. I don't really want to be out there recording on electrical devices in the rain. That would be bad. But, uh, the like assumption of separateness and specialization, you know, as the only way I think felt for me really suffocating. And part of being at Goddard was the difference between being in a school where I could fight for that liberal arts way of being, but it wasn't the default versus being at Goddard with other people who, who that's part of their way of being. There's a saying in, in permaculture, um, which is permaculture is a, um, a design method for, uh, creating more resilient human and ecological communities. So it's, it's a design thinking meets, uh, sort of, uh, agriculture and ecoforestry, um, process. It's a specific design process, but there's some principles and ethics associated with it. And one of them is integrate rather than separate or bring back into integration that which has been separated. And integration doesn't mean sameness and it doesn't mean nobody has any specialties, but that there's links between the different entities and the different elements. So I feel whole in that, like having the poetry and the gardening and all those things, they don't feel, it, it only feels overwhelming uh, when I'm trying to explain it to someone who wants one line about what I do. And the truth is the one line about what I do is I like help people like design and build the worlds they need based on their values, um, whether that's in the garden or in a book of poetry or, you know, all these things. But I also have this, like, I don't want to have to simplify myself. Uh, systems in Adrian Marie Brown, who wrote Emergent Strategy and Pleasure Activism, talks about complexity emerges out of simplicity. Relationship emerges out of, you know, um, the, through relationships. So we have, you know, a seed and then we have another seed and then they're in relationship. And that feeling of it's both simple and complex feels really good to me and felt really good to me at Goddard. And when it feels like someone's asking me for it to be only simple or when I've committed to way too many projects and it feels only complex, then I start to feel off. So I'm trying really hard to honor both of those in the work that I do in the world and the, you know, play also that I do in the world. Um, yeah, I'm, it's funny. I, I just was redesigning my website yesterday being like, okay, how many arms of a business is too overwhelming to someone who's coming to the website for the first time versus, you know, what part of my integrity with myself am I willing to compromise by removing some of them? So it's an ongoing mm. question. I don't know how y'all feel about that, but in your lives. Oh, but. Yeah. About the, like not being able, not being able to specialize or yeah. whatever, you know, like the, I mean, the writing, the resume, trying to present oneself on LinkedIn or, uh, websites. Um, I think that is the challenge for m many Goddard, <laughs> like, many Goddard people. Um, Especially, uh, so so one thing that Rachel and I are working on is creating a business circle, like a business happy hour. And um, I expect that a lot of our, the people who will attend will have similar issues. Like, th they'll be like, but wait, I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this. You know, like, I think we resist, we Goddard grads or alumni resist neat compartmentalization. Um, I think that that's probably pretty clear. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Casey and I have done, what, eight of these interviews so far, and that is pretty clear. <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> Having had these deep dives with people. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's wonderful. And I love what you are talking about, about the relation relational thing. And as far as a, I guess, I guess kind of tip, but it was, <laughs> I never did it, but Kat Lassard said to me, um, that maybe I should simplify my website. <laughs> uh, oh, fine, fair, <laughs> but simplify it by thinking about what questions people were going to ask when they came to my website mm -hmm. and then have those questions be those boxes that lead them down the, the right path, you know? Yes. And I'm like, that's brilliant. I love that. And 
I need to do that. And I just never did, you know, so, so I'm sorry, Kat, but now I am <laughs> broadcasting your wonderful advice. And, um, I think that will make sense for most of our kinds of businesses and kind of work. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, because, because someone coming to, um, index for the next world.com and seeing poet, you know, like gardener, all of those things might be like, wait, what, what, what do I want to click on? But if you, if you figure out what questions, why they're coming, then, you know, that's another. Exactly. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Ugh, yes. Yeah. That's the, yeah. the current overhaul. I mean, in the last 24 hours of the website is, is really along those lines. Bless Kat Lassard. She was my first, right? first advisor at Goddard, which was a wonderful, wonderful introduction. Yeah. She was, she was never my advisor. She was like my, fa- she was one of my favorite advisors that I never got to work with. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, her and Karen was Campbell. That for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, that's great. I, I wanted to sort of circle back um, because uh, we're, we're getting close to the end here. But um, as we mentioned earlier, you have a new chapbook out um, that was published in 2021, right? Last month, yeah. Last month, January 2021. Um, and then the next issue is coming out soon. So those are two different things. So the chapbook okay. is my poetry. Um, and then the index for the next world is the name of my business. And there are a few things that happen there, but one of them is there's a publication, um, and then an index of the pieces from the, that publication that, Mm. uh, focuses on many different artists, writers, creators, visions of a next world as if it were already here. And so Mm. we have our first issue. It's you can read for free, read, listen, watch for free. It's on the website, um, under index and on the homepage. Um, and then we're working on our second issue of that. And so that is a collaborative project that includes many different artists. And then the chapbook is my poetry. That's amazing. So, um, how, what, what is the process there with working with the other artists? So like how many, how many people do you work with and what do you highlight? It's changing. The first issue I reached out to folks I knew or folks I was interested in highlighting their pieces. And, um, it's a really lovely issue. It's small, but, uh, really robust. And now, you know, the intention was to move into a more traditional literary, uh, literary journal format, but, um, the internet is a really overwhelming place for people right now because they're living their whole lives on it. For anyone listening, you know, way in the future, we're recording this in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. I just had a fear that I said the wrong number after the word COVID. It's 19, (laughs) right? It is 19. (laughs) And I actually had that feeling this morning. I was like, wait, is it 19? Like when I woke up, I'm like, is the number 19? Why is it 19? There's like, some I, I, sense that it should have gone up because this has been happening for so long. Um, I know, yeah. I know. But, 2021, you know, like, yeah. yeah. No. So I think people, you know, traditionally with literary magazines, people um, like send in anonymous, like submissions, they're read anonymously, you pick some. We're not getting a huge amount of submissions because we're a fledgling publication. Um, and also, you know, the parts of it that are my business are really my business. And the index... Um, this publication is starting to feel more like it might want to be an artist collective. And so Mm -hmm. I'm in conversation with some of the people who have already contributed and some of the people in my life who are collaborators about if it might be changing form, um, going forward, but the intention to provide these sort of visionary maps to many different versions of a thriving next world that remains, um, and to have those be available to anyone who wants to read them. That's so awesome. Well, I'm excited. We're going to put links to all of all of the things that we have mentioned um, in the show notes and on our Goddard alumni website. Um, I am super excited. Oh, another thing that you have that you are working on us with is the Goddard Alumni Council. Uh, That's how we met. Well, we met on Goddard Alumni Weekend, right? right? But we're like, we roped you into the council. I love it. I'm so into it. <laughs> We're super happy to have you there as like the next generation. I'm like one of the oldies. <laughs> so, I don't want like, you all to leave though. Well, I just met you. Know. you. We'll see. <laughs> no, like our, our term, my term will be up 
long before Rachel's. So, um, yeah, but, but we're, we're very excited to, um, to be working with you right now and Same you're here. an amazing asset to the, to the council. Y'all and are wonderful. I feel like Yay. I'm learning so much from y'all and it's really fun to like work on something with people. I don't know if I think Casey, you work with other folks in your sort of day-to-day work, but I don't, and I missed working with people and <laughs> it's really fun to work with you guys, create things. Yeah. It's awesome. Like I, it's, it's, it's been a great group and, um, we, we are excited to have gotten certain projects off the ground and then like, mm-hmm. you know, this year having like even more stuff to do, uh, including this podcast and the website and the anti-racist circles and the business, you know, like it's all, like it's all very exciting and I'm super happy about it. And so, yeah. And you're an amazing addition to the team. Thank you. That's <laughs> so kind. That's really good. Thank you. Yay. But yeah, thank you so much for being with us today and for your amazing. I'm so excited that we got to talk to you. It's such a pleasure. I want to ask you all a bunch of questions now. (laughs) I'm so curious. (laughs) (laughs) You you can. I mean, you know, like maybe we'll we'll definitely have you back for maybe I don't know. A flipped interview. There you go. There you go. You can you can interview us about about stuff (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much Rachel for joining us I really appreciate having you today thank you all for having me and for your questions and conversation it's really wonderful thank you so much Rachel thanks Thanks for listening to our episode with Rachel Economy to find more info about her please visit her website indexforthenextworld.com and look in the show notes Also, to check out more information for the Alumni Council, please go to goddardalumni.com and feel free to sign up. Current projects on the website include Rachel Economy's Business Happy Hour, where we are just casual and we talk um, for freelancers and nonprofit uh, organizers and all of that. So please join us there. Thanks for listening to Goddard in the World podcast. This podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Council. It is produced and hosted by Casey Corona and Amanda Faye Laxon. It is edited by Amanda Faye Laxon. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.